Well, hey, everybody, whether you're here in the room or joining us online from wherever you are, it's great to be with you. And before we get to today's talk, I need to let you know, you didn't know this, but today is a truly historic day. And here's why. I have been teaching from the Bible since the fall of 2001, almost every weekend, uh, 20 years or so. But today is the first time that I have ever taught while under the influence of prescription (laughs) painkillers. Seriously, right? I threw out my lower back yesterday while I was lifting a pile of books and it like collapsed to the ground in pain. And so I need to give a shout out to my doctor, Channing Finkbeiner, who's tuned in right now, Mercy Health, who has replaced Starbucks as my favorite drug dealer. <laughs> and also my friend, Ray Lamsey, who is the best medical massage therapist this side of the Mississippi. So just shout out to both those guys. It's no exaggeration to say that it is because of them and of course, Jesus, that I stand before you. <laughs> Now, anyway, uh, we're in the third week of a series that we've called Second, that, um, as I've mentioned, is based on something the authors of the New Testament point out again and again and again, namely, that there was a lot more going on that first Christmas than initially meets the eye. Because as it turns out, when Jesus was born in that manger in Bethlehem, God was doing something that only he could do. Moreover, with the birth of Jesus, God intended to rewrite a few chapters in human history that had gone tragically wrong. And now if you've been with us for the past few weeks, you already have a sense of what I'm talking about because in our first week, we talked about how Jesus was a second Adam uh, who got right what the first Adam, that's like the Adam and Eve in Garden of Eden Adam, got wrong. Uh, And then last week, we talked about how Jesus was a second Joshua, much like the first Joshua, who was a character from Israel's history in the Old Testament, who was sent by God to lead his people into new freedom and into new purpose in the world. And by the way, if you missed either of those talks, I totally encourage you to go to our website this week while you're wrapping your presents and listen to them, because I'm telling you, when you understand this, it will forever change the way you experience Christmas. All right, so now with our time today, we get to explore how Jesus was born to be a third second, which kind of sounds weird to say, right? Uh, Specifically, how he was born to be a second Israel, and how, in fact, God sent Jesus to get right what ancient Israel got wrong. In other words, God sent Jesus to reimagine Israel's history and to fulfill the mission that they had failed to fulfill. And I'll show you what I mean. We need to briefly explore the foundational event in the history of ancient Israel, something that scholars have long called the Exodus. Uh, The specifics of that event, which occurred some 1,500 years before the time of Jesus, were recorded for us in an Old Testament book called Exodus. And as you open to the beginning of the book of Exodus, it's the second book in the Old Testament of your Bibles. Uh, And as the narrative begins, what we learn is that the descendants of a man named Israel, who for generations have been living in Egypt, have been enslaved. And they've cried out to God to be released from that slavery. And God responds by recruiting a man you probably have heard of named Moses or Moshe in Hebrew. That's because I had to take Hebrew class, so occasionally you're going to get a word. Sorry, right? But um, recruits Moses and then says to Moses, listen, I want you to go to Pharaoh, the leader in Egypt, and I want you to tell him that it's time for my people to be set free. And as many of you know, as the story unfolds, through dramatic and undeniable demonstrations of power, God rescues those people. And then days later, he leads them to a mountain in Egypt's Sinai Peninsula in order to give them a new identity and a new purpose 
in the world. Here's a picture of the region, and, and we don't know specifically which mountain was utilized in the narrative, but uh, there's a whole range of mountains. It all basically looks the same. Dry, barren, rocky, and generally unpleasant, but it's there that God chose to meet with his people. And not only does God meet with them there, he actually speaks to them there, and the author of Exodus records God's words to his chosen people this way. Here's, here's what God says to them. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. He says, now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, that's the terms of relationship God was establishing between himself and people, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. He says, although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, it's easy to miss, but God's designation of Israel as a kingdom of priests and a holy nation was an unprecedented event in human history. I mean, the first people who heard those words, those recently released slaves, would have had, they would have been very familiar with the role of priests after their time in Egypt. Egypt had been full of temples to all sorts of different gods, and therefore it was full of priests who worked those temples. But they knew that priests were those set-apart holy people who helped other people understand what a particular god was like. If a god was believed to be angry, vindictive, and altogether unpleasant, then the priests of that god who represent that god would tend to be angry, vindictive, and altogether unpleasant. And if that god was slow to show grace and generally lacking in love, then the priests who represented that god would generally be slow to show grace and lacking in love. In other words, ancient people knew that they could look at a priest to get a sense of the character of the god who that priest was committed to serve. And, but there's a little more going on here too because, and for me, this is where things get really interesting. Religion in the ancient world was intensely tribal and each god was believed to focus their attention on a particular region or nation. So like the idea that there would be a god who would lay claim to all of creation, a god who would say the whole earth is mine and who desired to use one nation, ancient Israel, as a kingdom of priests to show the rest of the world what he was like. Well, that was... That was revolutionary. This God was upending expectations at every turn. Anyway, after giving his chosen people a new identity and a new purpose in the world, God described for them a highly particular way of life that if lived out in flesh and blood would set them apart from all the other nations in the world. In other words, he called them to engage life by a different set of priorities, which, which the authors of the Old Testament describe for us in vivid detail. They were to be a people who would act justly and love mercy and who would walk humbly with their God. They were to be a people who would demonstrate compassion and not animosity towards people who did not yet know their God. A people who assumed a posture of servanthood in the world and who refused to succumb to impulses of, of self-preservation, even in times of uncertainty, a people who would seek to trust God and not to give in to fear, even when there was something to be afraid of, because they knew that God was ultimately in control. A, a people who existed not just for their sake, but for the sake of the world, to show the world what their God, what the God was like. 
Now, God knew that these instructions were counterintuitive at best, and the only chance that a group of people would have to embody them would be for them to learn to trust him completely. And he also knew that the only way for that to happen would be for him to lead them into a land so desolate, so barren, that without constant and consistent divine intervention, they would never survive. This land could function like a sort of greenhouse for trust in God to grow. And it was a land that, well, honestly, it looked something like this. Uh, back in the summer of 2019, that was before the pandemic, the good old days, as I'm starting to call them, right? Uh, but summer of 2019, my wife and I spent a few hours hiking in the Sinai Peninsula with a group of people. And it was more than long enough to understand how challenging it would have been to try to live there. Uh, to say it was a bit uncomfortable would be a dramatic understatement. Like when we arrived at the trailhead at 10 a.m., it was already 104 degrees. Uh, moreover, because of the geography, there wasn't a cloud in the sky. And I mentioned that to my guide and he smiled and he says, oh, I come here all the time. There's never a cloud in the sky in the Sinai. So, so like when we stepped off the bus, it literally felt like we walked down the stairs and into a sauna. And I thought, this is a great time to take a four-hour walk. No, right? I, I, and here was what hit me right away. I, I had heard the story of Israel's season in the wilderness, and wilderness and desert in Hebrew are the same word, but I've heard those stories since I was a kid, but I never imagined the desert of the Sinai Peninsula to be so thoroughly inhospitable. It's a place of like oppressive heat during the day and bone-chilling cold at night. It's a dangerous place filled with all sorts of snakes and scorpions. It's a place where food is scarce, water is practically non-existent. And nonetheless, it's the place through which God led the descendants of a man named Israel for 40 years to teach them that they could trust him unconditionally. Now, because of that season in the wilderness, uh, the Jewish people came to recognize the number 40 as a number of testing and preparation. It's like God uses that period of time to prepare people and to test people and to help them know and understand him. And hold on to that. It becomes important in a little bit. But anyway, it's critical for us to understand that during the time in the wilderness, God directed the path of his chosen people one step at a time. Sometimes we call it the wilderness wanderings. Israel didn't wander in the wilderness. God led them every step of the way, which also meant that they had no idea where he would lead them, and they had no idea what awaited them around the next corner. They couldn't see a way forward. They couldn't see a way out. All they knew was that they needed to trust God with their next step, which was precisely the point. It wasn't easy, but it provided fertile ground for their trust in God to grow. And this new identity that he had for them to move from like an abstract theological concept to an emotional reality and for them to understand a bit of God's character and God's heart. Because if they were going to represent him in the world, they had to know him intimately it's like, it's no exaggeration to say that during the season in the wilderness, the people of Israel had nothing, but they lacked nothing because God became their everything. In fact, at the end of this 40-year period of time, uh, they're up on a mountain kind of looking into the promised land, and, and their leader for that time in the wilderness, Moses, stands up, and, and he gives them a speech 
to inspire them, to encourage them, and to remind them. And he points back at that season in the desert. And, and here's, what, here's how he describes it. He says to the people, remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years. Like one step at a time, he was leading you to humble you and to test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which is a great Hebrew word, manach. Haha, <laughs> there you go, another one. And it means, what is it? Because it fell from the sky, bread from heaven. Like, what is it? Which neither of you nor your ancestors had known. He says, to teach you that a man does not live on bread alone but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. He goes on, your clothes did not wear out and your feet did not swell during these 40 years. It's like Moses says to the people, listen, you've got to remember, God took care of you in the desert. He provided you bread from heaven to eat. He caused water to flow from rocks without which survival in the Sinai would have been impossible. He even supernaturally protected your clothes and your feet. I mean, he was right there with you, you can trust him as a heavenly father who is with you, who is for you, and who is ahead of you, guiding you into your future. Well, shortly after Moses gave this speech, uh, Israel changes leadership. Moses passes away and, and a new leader named Joshua takes the people into the land that God had promised their ancestors, a land that we today call Israel-Palestine. And he chose that land out of all the available real estate on planet Earth for a very specific reason. See, 2,000 years ago, the nation of Israel stood at the crossroads of the ancient world. And so it was the perfect place for them to live out their calling, to demonstrate what the character of their God was like to the nations. In fact, scholars argue that in ancient times, as many as one million people each year would have traveled through Israel along the coast, along a highway called the Via Maris, or the Way of the Sea. And these people would have had ample opportunity to observe the highly particular practices of the nation of Israel. See, these people lived according to a different set of rules and a different set of expectations. And so traders at some point would learn that when you close your eyes at night, you don't have to be as much concerned that someone's going to come steal your goods because these people are committed to living a new and a better way, a way that reflects what their God, what the God intends for all people. A set of practices that really represented a better way to be a human being in the world and that actually reflected the heart and the character of the God they represent. And it's a beautiful plan. And it's a good plan. And it was God's plan. And everything was going great until it wasn't. Here's what happened. Shortly after entering the promised land, Israel found itself in a season of material blessing. God had told them that this was a land that would be flowing with milk and honey, which in the ancient world was a picture of just abundance. God's grace and generosity on them, the milk and honey of the promised land. But Israel is blessed, and as a result, they quickly lost sight of their divinely ordained identity and purpose. Their trust in God, which had began as being rock solid, began to migrate away from God and towards their individual abilities to meet their own needs and to control their own outcomes. Moreover, they fell into familiar patterns of tribalism 
It was sort of like we're the insiders and they're the outsiders. We're the Jews and they're the nations. But this connection that they had this, this mission in life to represent the character of their God to the world, that slowly faded into the background. Even to the point that a day came when they looked up at God and they said, God, we demand that you give us a human king. See, God had said, no, I'm going to be your king. I will lead you through the prophets. But they said, no, that's not good enough. We want a king, and check this out, like all of our neighbors have. We don't need you to be our king. We want you to give us a human king. And, 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 and when that happened, it began to compromise their ability to show the world what God was like, which, as you might imagine, brings us to Jesus. Specifically how he was, in a very real sense, a second Israel. Now, as it turns out, when you start looking for them, the connections between the life of Jesus and the history of ancient Israel in those accounts of Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the, their connections are everywhere if you're looking for them. I, I think they're most clearly seen in one of the earliest stories in the narrative, and it's set immediately following Jesus' baptism in the Jordan River. And I visited the spot where, around where they believed it happened. It's right where the Jordan River enters the Dead Sea. It's right near Jericho. So if you know the Old Testament story, uh, Joshua leads them into the promised land and the first city they encounter is Jericho. And so a man named John the Baptist is baptizing people uh, who want to repent, turn from their sins. And then all of a sudden one day Jesus comes down. He's baptized by John as well. But then shortly after Jesus' baptism, something very interesting happens, especially as it relates to our conversation for today. One of Jesus' first followers, a man named Matthew, records the details for us in his account of Jesus' life. Here's what Matthew tells us. Then, as in after being baptized, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, into the desert, which is basically everything south of the Dead Sea all the way to the Red Sea, to be tempted by the devil. It says, after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Now, I just need to pause here for a second and give you a piece of critical background information. See, Matthew's account of the life of Jesus was originally addressed to Jewish Christians. And when Jewish Christians read that God led someone by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights, they instantly would have connected that to their own story, to the story of the Exodus. It's like God led Jesus much like he had led them or their ancestors into the wilderness for 40 Days this time, not years, but with the same purpose in order for Jesus to be trained and prepared for his purpose in the world. And much like Jesus, or much like Israel rather, Jesus experienced uncertainty and discomfort in the desert. He was hungry. And he, like them, would have been tempted to take matters into his own Hands. In fact, the Bible authors record sort of this interesting conversation between Jesus and the tempter. And the tempter basically says to Jesus, hey, if you're the son of God, turn these rocks into bread. And that rocks in the Sinai actually kind of look like bread. So it's kind of a fun, you know, thing that really, I thought that was cool. No one else did. That's cool. Yeah. Anyway, but Jesus has the power to do it. And so he says, just do it. You're hungry. Intervene. And Jesus quotes back and he says, no, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Oh, we heard that somewhere before. Where was that? Oh yeah, Moses told them that, right? The same exact words show up in the temptation of Jesus as had shown up in the temptation of Israel. But see, unlike ancient Israel, Jesus passed the test perfectly. 
And then immediately following his time in the desert, uh, the authors of the accounts of his life tell us that Jesus re-enters the promised land, much like ancient Israel, crossing into it, and then traveling to the north, to the Galilee, which is the, the large sea and the whole area there. And he begins to do something so interesting. He calls disciples. And, and if you've been around church, you know, there's a certain number of disciples that he calls, and we always call them the the 12 disciples. And I remember the day when I was in Israel and somebody first pointed it out and it was like, oh my goodness, it's been there the whole time I never saw it. You'll never guess how many tribes ancient Israel was organized into. 12. He's the new Israel. He's going to do what they didn't do. God has not given up on introducing himself to the world. And so Jesus comes and he calls these 12 disciples like ordinary guys, some of them misfits. And he says, come follow me. Come learn to be like me. You say, well, what was Jesus like? Jesus, well, he had a new way to teach them to live too, a way that would set them apart on purpose for a purpose. In fact, you might summarize it this way. They were to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And what's wild is they're a nation, but eventually they're going to be made up of all the nations. And you say, well, who's the leader of this new nation? King Jesus. He'd say, I'm going to lead you, much like God wanted to lead ancient Israel. Let me show you a new way to be a human in the world. It's like Jesus says, we need to try this again. God's heart for the world has not changed. But his experiment with ancient Israel didn't lead into the place that he so desired. And so we're going to try this again with a new Israel who will call a new group of people to put the character of their creator on display for the world to see. In fact, that really is one of the reasons why Jesus came. In fact, Jesus actually says as much during the Last Supper, that famous Last Supper. Everything sort of lands there and intersects there. It's like hours before being betrayed by one of his closest friends. Jesus is having a conversation with the 12 and he looks at them and he says this. He says, if you really know me, you will know my father as well. And from now on, you do know him and have seen him. And as I imagine it, Jesus' disciples are like midway through their hummus and they just stop and they stare at him. It's like, you can't be serious. Jesus, we've heard you teach. We've seen you heal. You, we know you, 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 you proclaim to have the authority to forgive sins. And so like we're convinced that you're more than a man, but, but to claim to perfectly reflect the heart and the character of God, like that was about as extreme a claim as anyone could have imagined. So, so much so that Jesus' disciple, uh, Philip, decides to sort of raise his hand and stop Jesus because he needs to make a clarifying request. It's like, uh-huh, okay, Jesus, um, Here's what he says. He says, Lord, uh, show us the Father. Speaking of, of God, the creator. Show us the Father and that will be enough for us. Just, just show us God. No big deal, right? Just, I mean, you didn't just say what we thought you just said. So yeah, just show us the Father. That'll be enough. Uh, we're a bit confused. I mean, why just, don't you just reveal God to us and then we'll be good? And Jesus responds. And Jesus' response to Philip didn't exactly clear things up. It actually made matters a bit more complicated. Here's what Jesus said. So show us the Father. And he says, don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you for such a long time? Now, this question would have literally sucked the air out of the room. I mean, Philip and the other disciples would have been stunned. And that's before Jesus said, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. 
Like, how can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I'm in the Father and that the Father's in me? He goes on, the words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. In other words, Philip, if you want to know what God would say, listen to me. And if you want to understand God's perspective on something, you need to pay attention to me. And if you want to know how God would respond to someone or something, watch me. And if you wonder how God would get involved in a situation, watch my actions. Because honestly, you'll never get a better clue to what God is like than me. I came to get right what Israel got wrong. I've come to expose you to God's character and what he intends for your life here and now. It's like no more mysteries, no more temples, at least not in a traditional sense. No more complicated rituals and rules and religious systems. I came to show you in flesh and blood the heart and character of your creator. God wants you to know him in the most personal way possible. So he didn't just send information. He didn't just send a prophet with words. He sent himself. He entered time and space. So instead of hoping that you could see through a fog of first century Jewish religious tradition that had gone completely off the rails, or hoping that you might look up from the mess of this world and perhaps get a sense of who he is, like he was born in a human body. He came down to live among you. I came down to live among you so that you could see and hear and feel the heart of God towards broken, imperfect people like you and so that the whole world might come to know him. In other words, Philip, just so we're clear, Jesus would say, I'm, I'm not claiming to have the best explanation for God. I am the best explanation for God. I've come to explain the Father to you with every breath I take and every move I make. So listen, listen and watch what I do because you'll never get any closer to God than me. And so there, there's this conversation that I think would have left the disciples confused. I imagine as they laid on in bed at night, them talking back and forth, like could he really, could he really mean it? And then the next day, they, they would watch him hang on a cross. And then three days later, on that first Easter Sunday, they would come face to face with Jesus after his resurrection. And all of a sudden, it became clear that what he said was true. And they told people who told people who told people who told people. And one of the things they told people is that the creator has come among us. The creator has come among us in the person of Jesus Christ and we watched him and we walked with him and we listened to him and we heard from him and we received from him and he's love and he's grace and he's beauty. He's everything. Eventually there were letters that began to circulate and this idea that the creator came among us in flesh and blood in the person of Jesus Christ was very central to these letters. In fact, uh, one of the clearest examples comes in a letter written to a ch- Christians living in a town called Colossae, which is in modern-day Turkey. The pastor is a guy named Paul who writes the letter. Here's what Paul writes, speaking of Jesus. He says, the Son is the image of the invisible God, 
the firstborn over all creation. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Jesus. And then a bit later in the same letter, Paul writes this. In Jesus Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. In other words, Jesus Christ is the creator in flesh and blood. And consequently, he perfectly reflects the heart and character of God. And friends, that's why 2,000 years ago, God sent Jesus as a second Israel to get right what they got wrong. And I'm telling you, once again this week, when a truth like this gets from your mind to your heart, it will forever change the way that you experience the Christmas season. Because with this understanding, it's easy to see that Christmas was about way more than a baby in a manger. It was nothing less than the invasion of a loving God into a world full of people who needed more than anything to be rescued from an impossible situation and to know the heart of their creator, a creator who wants to have a relationship with them. And that should absolutely fill us with wonder. That's the meaning of Christmas. That's the significance of Christmas. Now before I close us in prayer, um, I want to just invite, if, if any of you would like to pray with someone, specifically um, as individuals after the service, uh, you're welcome. On the screen on the right, there'll be a few friends underneath uh, with name tags on. They would just love to meet with you and pray with you, whatever you have going on. Um, it's just a new tradition that we want to start up. So if you ever come and you need someone, we'll, we'll be here for you. All right, so I'd love to invite you to stand um, and I'll close our time in prayer. Heavenly Father, once again this week, we just want to say thank you. Thank you for these ancient accounts. Thank you for the details they record that help us catch a glimpse of the incredible, wonderful miracle that happened in that manger 2,000 years ago when you sent your one and only son into our world, a light breaking through the darkness. Thank you for meeting us at the place of our greatest need and thank you for the hope that we have because of Jesus. This week as we approach the celebration of his birth, I pray that you would awaken wonder once again in us, especially if we're, we've grown overly familiar with the story. Take our breath away, fill our eyes with tears as we brush up against the most incredible truth that has ever been spoken that you came among us. And so we bless you and we celebrate you and we thank you and we love you in the name of our Savior, our King, your Messiah, Jesus Christ, we pray. And everyone said, amen. Friends, we will see you back here in a few days for an epic Christmas Eve celebration. Go in peace. Happiness, wake it up.